Hey, welcome guys. This is the Sports Psych MDs podcast. Today, Armin and I, we, we really talk about childhood development and the importance of that childhood, those developmental years, to setting the foundation for, for ultimate success in life and, and within sports. We're going to talk about how certain coaching or parenting styles can help bring the best out of the child. And we're going to talk about how to identify certain warning signs. What are the warning signs for possible mental illness? Is corporal punishment effective? At the end, we're going to talk about almost this epidemic of anxiety and depression within our teenagers and young adults. And we, we touch a little bit on these mass shootings and how there's a misconception about the relationship to mental health. Overall, it's a very intense conversation, but I hope it can provide some sort of sense of clarity. And anyways, let's get into it. Thanks for listening. Sports like MDs? Yeah, man. You feeling this, y'all? Yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sports Psych MDs podcast. We are the Sports Psych MDs. That's right. Today, we're going to be talking about kids, child athletes. And That's it's right. actually your idea to do this topic today, right, children and sports. Yeah, no, because, uh, you know, I, I, I recognize that a lot of our viewers and listeners, they're probably parents of young athletes. And they may have an interest in the experience of a young athlete and the types of mental health challenges they may have. Definitely. Right? And there's a lot of that that's rooted in kind of developmental theory, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Well, a lot of these parents were children at one point and child athletes at one point. <laughs> Most so. of them were, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. All right, so children in sports, we've talked ad nauseum about the uh, – the benefits kids can gain from playing sports, That's team right. sports, individual sports, just sports in general. So let's recap that real quick for our listeners who may not be interested in listening to the previous podcasts. <laughs> well, one thing, I think the first thing that comes to mind when I think about the benefits of sports for children, ethics. I mean, sports lays a great foundation for the development of values and principles like integrity, teamwork, hard work and discipline. I mean, these are qualities that are pretty much critical to success in life. And children love to play, right? Play in and of itself is a form of therapy. Oh yeah, from the very beginning, you want to allow right. your ch- child time to just have t- free play. That's right. And not, we're not talking about get, being on those iPads or those iPhones with screens in front of their faces. We're talking about nah. playing with cardboard boxes or Legos or, yeah, or outside, you know. But just to piggyback on what you're saying about sports, being on a team, learning how to work well with others, learning how to put the individual goals to the side for the greater good of the team, developing that work ethic, developing discipline, dedication, developing re- resilience because you're overcoming obstacles. And also, we're, we're going to talk a lot about coaching today. And a lot of times when you're a kid, whether or not you have a good stability at home, stable parents, good parents that can model good behavior, For sure. having a, a coach is an opportunity to have an, an additional mentor, or it might be the opportunity to have for the first time to have a mentor because coaches like i think we talked about in the first episode they can make profound impacts on children's lives just like parents just like uh, pastors Mm -hmm. um, just like teachers that's right a coach can change the trajectory of a child absolutely that's lebron james yeah we can't talk about it enough yeah Yeah. um and then 
you learn how to win in sports, but more importantly, you learn how to lose. That's right. So that's right. It lays the foundation for kids because a lot of these things you would say, oh, every kid should learn these things, and they can learn them outside of sports. But so, sports makes it so easy because it's concrete. You you win or you lose. You strike out or you hit a home run. You get tackled. You get knocked down. You get back up. You fight. You win. That's right. That's you right. You party. You have a good time with your your friends. Most most importantly, you have fun as a kid. I know my best memories as a kid are playing sports, having a blast. Me too, man. Absolutely. It was, you know, individual sports was cool, but for me, I really loved team sports. You know, it was something about being able to get together with, with my friends, you know, guys that I, I knew and just work together to win, to just, to just be great together. There was just something about that that was just like so motivating, so inspiring. And all good things. We love talking about the positive benefits of sports, you know, and we're going to continue to talk about that. But I'd be remiss, we'd be remiss if we didn't also touch on those situations in which playing sports can be detrimental, you know, or, or can create problems. Frankly, oh, you you right? tell me about the problems because I only see good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's all we want to see, right? Because winning and, or biased. and competitive but I mean, we all love to see victory and especially with our children, you know, we want to see our kids successful, all of us. And we do kind of have this value system in, in our society where we kind of feel like, well, you can't really experience winning and, and success unless you really try, really actually put forth that effort, you know, and so oftentimes we may push our children, nudge our children because we feel like. We want that. We, we, we understand what we know what's best for them, right? Mm-hmm. We know what's best for them. So, so we want to nudge them along because we think that they need to have that experience. We want them to taste success. Oh. We want them to have success. And sometimes we want them to do things we weren't able to accomplish. Exactly. We're talking about yeah. these, some of the, these parents that like to live vicariously through their children. Mm. Maybe they have, they have their own unfulfilled goals or disappointments in their life. And, oh, I have this kid. He can, he can, I, I never got a college scholarship to play football maybe he can yeah so what are you gonna do you're gonna put all your work and effort and emotions into your child so they can fulfill your dream and it's not necessarily their dream that makes me think about a a couple athletes that Mm -hmm. have had those type of parents that are just so dedicated at a young age and it actually worked worked out well for at least for these individuals the serena and venus williams absolutely yeah. Um, playing in Compton at a very young age on like you read about it, like really horrendous condition, mm-hmm. horrible tennis courts, but their dad had him out there playing every day and every day. Look at him now to yeah. two of the best of all time. Serena Williams, arguably, I don't, I don't even know if it's an argument at this uh, point. No, <laughs> the best no women's, debate. No debate. yeah, the yeah. best women's tennis player of all time. Yeah. A lot of that has to do with their father getting him into tennis at such a young age. You know, some people consider Serena to not only be the, the best female tennis player of all time, but one of the greatest athletes, period. Absolutely. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. And then that also, Tiger Woods, another mm-hmm. prime example, probably, Absolutely. Ar- arguably. I mean, we wouldn't have ever said arguably 10, 15 years ago, but now you kind of have to say arguably the best golfer of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, he was on this trajectory to just smash every record and then unfortunately had some interpersonal social issues but his father had him everyone's seen the video of him swinging a golf club at i don't know what age yeah it looked like he was like four or five years old exactly protege and obviously the main drivers of these generational once in a generation athletes were their parents 
and right or wrong, they steered them into a direction and they're massively successful within the sport. Outside the sport, we don't really know too much specifics, but they're superstar athletes. And obviously this doesn't, this doesn't always work out. Uh, one that came in the news recently is Andrew Luck, uh, retiring at 29 years old. Huge, man. His he, father, he shocked the yeah. world. His father played uh, NFL football. Right. He was an NFL quarterback. And, I mean, I, I don't know the reasons he retired, but who knows? Maybe his father, I mean, obviously his father got him into play quarterback, and maybe he wanted to play to please his father. Who knows? He was a great player. He's got a lot of options outside of sports. Um, he made yeah. a personal decision. Left a lot of money on the table. But he has an interesting trajectory, right? Because he sort of came from privilege and he, he is a Stanford grad. Uh, and actually, from what I understand, got his full degree. So I think in architecture. Yeah. And yeah, right. Something very marketable. So, I mean, he's not going to have much of a problem with transitioning. And I want to talk about, we're going to get into a lot of developmental stages in today's topic because we're talking about kids and they have to develop. But quickly for Andrew Luck. I want to bring up the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. All right. So this one is a little different. It's been around for quite some time. It starts with you have these stages of needs in your life and you progress through the stages. The first one is physiological needs. These are essentials. Food, water. Mm-hmm. Next one, safety. You need shelter. Safety. Your parents need to be comfortable. So boom, that's easy. And then belonging and love. So relationship, that's what you need next. Next thing is self-esteem. This is you achieving goals, receiving recognition, respect, acceptance. The one after that is cognitive, and that's kind of the search for meaning in life. Mm. And then you go to aesthetic, which is the search for kind of this balance, harmony, and beauty. And then the final step is self-actualization. That's when your goal or potential is met, and you have this joyful, empathetic attitude. You're, you're f- you feel fulfilled, and you're giving. So I want to say, Andrew Luck, confident decision to retire from football, feels that, that he's completed that self-esteem stage. He's already achieved his goals. He re- he's received respect, yep. acceptance, recognition. You just look at all his teammates, all the coaches around the league, just siding with him in his decision to quit at such a young, young age. And he's done already done a lot. And right now, he, maybe he's maybe he's searching for meaning. Although he did say in past interviews that. The number one important thing in his life is his family. And he recently had a newborn and he's married and maybe he already found the meeting and the meeting is his family. So he realizes now that he just wants, in order to have that aesthetic stage, that balance, that harmony, he needs to step away from football and focus on himself and his family in order to get to self-actualization. So we're going to try to draw these comparisons. I don't know. What do you think about that? No, I think it's great. I think it's great. Yeah. And Andrew Luck, man, what a what an amazing story. I mean, here's a guy who was drafted to take over for Peyton Manning. Big shoes to fill. Huge. Right? Big helmet to fill. And and like not only was he he drafted to to you know play that role because of course the Colts had moved on from Manning at that point or were in the process of doing so. A lot of experts in the in the sports world said that he was a once-in-a-generation player. So here he was, his first-round draft pick. Um, number one overall. Number one. Same draft class as RG3. Best college uh, prospect since John Elway. There it is. So huge expectations, man. I mean, that's like, you know, it's almost like LeBron-type mm-hmm. expectations you know, in, in the basketball world. He brought the Colts um, to the AFC Championship game in his second season. 
So a lot of promise, right? He inspired a lot of hope. And looking back now, you, you almost wonder to what extent did all that pressure contribute to development of other types of issues, like maybe anxiety, perhaps. And you, you think about having to adjust from a major injury with all that pressure, yeah. all the money you're making, all the fans that are supporting you, yeah. the same ones that just booed, you know, mm-hmm. and, and yet you can't be there on the field to do your job, to lead your team, your quarterback, right? And now you're kind of looking over your shoulder. You know how the league is, right? I mean, you go down too long and somebody else kind of... Yeah, I don't think he had to worry about that. Well, listen. That injury, those injuries, man. He didn't have to. But we really, it's hard for us to know, and that's what this is all about. It's really hard for us to know what was going on with him internally. And we can assume, but it, it seems fair to say at this point that he internalized a lot of this kind of stress over time. I wonder to what extent did it kind of delay the progress of some of his recovery from these injuries that he, he talked about. And, and I wonder to what extent the culmination of all these things factored into his decision. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think the fact that he has, he has options and he values things outside of football is what ultimately allowed him to be like, all right, the risks are outweighing the rewards of football at this point. So I'm going to yeah. take a step away. Yeah. So that'll lead us. Let's, let's jump back into children. Cause that's what we're talking about today. But we had to talk about Andrew Luck. That's out in the news right now. Football's alive and well. Yeah. And talk, well, tell me, yeah, you want to talk about a little Piaget or yeah, a little absolutely. Eric Erickson? So, oh, wow. You just throwing those names out there like that, man. Those are our homies. Yeah, man. <laughs> Our homies for sure. All right. Yeah. The, these are actually uh, some of the, the fathers of modern psychology. They had theories that at the time were kind of groundbreaking um, for Piaget. His theory was, well, it set the foundation for what we consider to be a cognitive model for how we as humans develop cognitively. And so Erickson, how we develop our intelligence, our intelligence, yeah, our intelligence, our decision making how we think and rationalize and reason and all that good stuff. And then Erickson, he was considered the, the father of kind of social development. We call it psychosocial development. And so we're going to kind of talk about their theories in context throughout this, this podcast. So we, we wanted to kind of give these guys a little bit of a shout out and give you guys a little, a little taste of, of their theories. So yeah. these, are, these are guys that we've studied, so we got to give them their credit where credit is due. So Piaget theorized that uh, children are born with a very basic and primitive mental framework, right? So, and, th- and that's genetically in- inherited. Um, and we know this because you may recognize with, with your infants, they sort of come out of the womb with certain abilities. Uh, we call them primitive reflexes, like the suckling reflex, you know, enables them to grasp the bottle. They come right out of the womb ready to take the bottle. They're ready to feed. Right. Um, they also have that, uh, that reflex in which they sort of will always, we call it rooting, right? They always will turn their, their, their necks in the direction of... The nipple. The nipple, right? Um, and they, they start they, young. They do. They already know. They already know. And then, of course, that grasping reflex. We all know you put your finger, your pointer mm-hmm. finger, a baby's hand, you know, near his hand, he's going to grasp, he's mm-hmm. going he's gonna to grab hold, right? These things are innate. Um, and he recognized this in his first stage of development, 
which is kind of, you know, from birth to around two years old, maybe a year and a half, that's the sensory motor stage. And, and that's defined by a children's sort of navigating the world around them and understanding and interpreting the world around them by touch, feel, and sensory modalities like taste, right? And eventually vision and what they hear. And these are the, the ways that they're really interacting with the world and, and how their mind is developing. So to Piaget, cognitive development was a progressive reorganization of mental processes as a result of biological maturation and environmental experience. That's um, intense. Yeah, for let sure. Me, let me bring the, a specific example in sports. Yes. All right. So how this works, and this is why we're talking about it at length here, is as a coach, as a, as a parent even, when you're trying to motivate a child to do a behavior you want them to do and to not perform a behavior you don't want them to do, what do you use? Do you use positive reinforcement? Do you praise the good behavior that, that you want them to continue to do? Or do you punish the bad behavior that you don't want them to do? So there's been studies that have shown that children under the age of 12, which 12 years old is a marker of the last stage in Jean Piaget's cognitive development. Usually around 12 and older, you're in formal operational. And that means you can think abstractly, you can reason, and do deductive, futuristic thinking, meaning you can break down things in your head. You don't need to physically manipulate things. You can have an idea in your head and physically manipulate. You can do a math problem without writing it out on a piece of paper. So what the studies have shown, and there's several studies, there's one from Germany, and there's also one from WashU, Washington University in St. Louis, that show children under the age of 12 learn better from positive reinforcement. Check that out. From being praised by doing a good behavior. So in sports, this means cheering someone on when they get a base hit. Yep. Giving them a high five. Maybe even after the game, you give them, let's go get some ice cream. How about some ice cream, bub? What a, Everybody what a game. loves ice cream. What a game. For sure. And yeah. young kids get it. They understand that. An eight-year-old understands that. What they found out is eight-year-olds don't really understand when they do something bad and you punish them. They don't mm. really... They can't really correlate that in their heads because they haven't reached that stage of formal operational thinking that you usually reach at 12 years old. And that's why they see the stark contrast between 12 and 8-year-olds where 12-year-olds, they actually respond almost better to the punishment because they can understand that, okay, this, this is a behavior that obviously they don't want me to do. Right. That's why I was punished. And let me not do that anymore. And that's actually more impactful for someone that's 12 and older. So it's important to know this as a parent and as a coach to know how to, I guess, modulate your child's behaviors or get them to do what you want and get them not to do what you don't want them to do. And so what about spanking? So, yes. So five year, What about five years old? A guy, the five year, this five-year-old kid running around, he won't sit still, he's exactly. embarrassing me in public. What do I do? So when I say punishment... I don't want you to immediately jump to spanking or what we call corporal punishment. Um, there's also studies out on this, several studies, and actually the American Academy of Pediatrics has a committee that released guidelines um, having to do with everything I'm talking about right now. So there's, let me t bring it back a little bit. There's punishment where you give a consequence to weaken a behavior, and then there's also negative reinforcement where you re remove a reward. Like 
if your teenager does bad, you be like, all right, you can't have your cell phone for a week or no Xbox for a week. That's oh negative reinforcement. To these new kids, man, yeah. it's like death. Punishments like timeout or corporal punishment, spanking, like you said. So spanking, actually, they found out it's a less effective strategy than timeout or removal of privileges for reducing an undesired behaviors. So spanking, although in the, in the moment, it's going to stop the undesired behavior, but its effectiveness has been shown to decrease over time. This has been studied. And the only way to maintain the initial effect of the spanking is to systematically increase the intensity at which you do the spanking, which can obviously teeter on actual abuse. Thus, yeah. they say at best spanking is only effective when used selectively and in an infrequent situations. Okay. So, and let me. So when they don't see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> so that sounds sadistic, actually. So let me get a little bit deeper into the spanking. Uh, all right, Armin. I know you're a big fan of spanking, but we'll put well, that to hey, the side. I, mean, I got spanked, you know. Yeah, I mean, we gotta... did you get spanked growing up? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I got the belt on the bottom a couple of times. Once you get it, you realize, all right, I don't want that. All it takes them is slapping that belt. That's right. So, no, 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 no. Honestly, that's man, old school, I've evolved. Right? I've evolved. Well, the, the world I, I used ha- to be about spanking. The world but... has progressed as well, but there's still 19 states that allow corporal punishment spanking. In, in schools, schools. and I'm gonna, I want to get into that. But before we get into that, so they say spanking children actually increases the chance of phys- what the physical injury, and the child's unlikely to understand the connection between the behavior and the punishment. Especially a, a young child under eight, and most likely you're spanking. You're not spanking someone 12 or older. Mm-hmm. You're going to be spanking someone less than 12. And we already talked about how punishment doesn't. So work. here's what I want to know, though. Like, what happens if they don't? You say they don't understand, but mm-hmm. what does that really mean? Like. So they, they get spanked, let's say with that belt you mentioned, but they don't get it. So what's the result? Are they traumatized? So that sometimes can happen. You're modeling aggressive behavior. So sometimes it gets ingrained in them that this aggression, this spanking, is a solution to conflict. And this has actually been shown to increase aggression in preschool and school children. And it's also been shown to lead to increase violence in the future and them growing up as adults and increasing spousal violence, increasing abuse to their own kids. Mm. The data shows this. That's because crazy. a lot of times it just, it, it just results in shock. The, the kid is in shock usually when they're getting spanked. So it's not an effective long-term strategy. Once again, in moderation, okay, maybe. But we're trying to preach time out. All right, or go to timeout. Prin- or you can let the principal have them. And positive reinforcement. In those 19 so, states. Yeah, Texas. They define corporal punishment means the deliberate infliction of physical pain by hitting, paddling, spanking, slapping, or any other physical force used as means of discipline. And that's allowed. And then parents can actually, parents are allowed to sign, but they have to sign to opt out. Uh, and when you're enrolled, you're immediately opt into this corporal punishment deal. <laughs> How convenient. And then some school districts specify the exact dimensions of the paddles to be used for discipline. For example, in Alabama, they recommend that schools use a quote-unquote wooden paddle approximately 24 inches in length, 3 inches wide, and a half inch thick. Hold on. How old is that? It does report? not have holes, cracks, splinters, tape, or other foreign materials from 2015. <laughs> it's funny that you have to like actually specify that. Yeah. So we say like out in California, we're progressive and maybe the South and Midwest, not so much. Yeah, I mean, they're a little bit behind the times. Maybe. So, well, I guess so. I mean, according to the, the, the literature. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. if you're using it infrequently, 
the the, show, the the results have shown infrequently is still I guess okay but I mean if if you have evidence here that timeouts work better negative reinforcement removing a privilege um, you can't watch TV tonight if that works better then why are people spanking they mm. said sometimes it, it becomes addicting for the actual parent too wow. because you they you do get that immediate relief when you hit someone. But then, like we said, it's gonna—it's not—it's not gonna be as effective the more you do it, and then you have to escalate, and then you have risk for abuse. So, yeah. and if they don't even really understand what they're doing or why what they're doing is is wrong, I don't know. It, it's kind of weird to think that hurting them physically is the way to go. Yeah, but people people see the media results and they don't really think long term. But the studies bear out especially in any kid under 12 years old, any form of punishment isn't as as effective as positive reinforcement. So what that means is, okay, so anytime you actually want to punish someone, the, the punishment has to be as closely linked to the behavior as possible, and it needs to be consistent. And then anytime you want to reward a behavior, possibly enforce it, once again, it has to be as close to the desired behavior as possible, and it has to be consistent. Consistency is key here. And the other thing is, for these young kids, a lot of them, any type of attention they get is reinforcing. That's right. So that's why we say, sometimes you got to ignore bad behavior. Because ultimately, a lot of these kids, sometimes, especially kids with ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, or ADHD or conduct disorder, they're really doing these behaviors for attention. And if you only give your child attention when they're doing bad behaviors, what are they going to do? They want your t- attention. They're f- they're, they're, they need your attention. So they're going to act out because that's the only time you give them attention. you got to start giving them attention for good behaviors, for pro-social behaviors. I hope folks are listening, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going in. You <laughs> no doubt. All right, let's go. <laughs> so, I mean, wow, where do we go from there? So we go back to sensory motor stage. Oh, we that's don't need to birth- talk about well, that. Well, hold on. The I just want to... Here's no what cares. I want to do, because we're going to link it back. We're going to, we're going to tie All everything right. together. Pre-operational stage is his second stage. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is important because during this stage, young children can now start to think about things symbolically. And this is the ability to make one thing, a word or an object, stand for something other than itself. Right? So I, I think this is, the reason why this is interesting to talk about is like, this is probably the stage in which a child is going to be first introduced to like the beginnings of sports. It's right? like two to seven years old. Right. So it's like a, a, the ball, right? Mm-hmm. You're, the, they're going to be playing with the ball and um, they may even you know, shoot the ball into the hoop and you know, they may throw the ball around with dad or whatever and, or mom. And they kind of really start getting in touch with things and start to, to learn the, the basics, fundamentals and rudiments of what will eventually become athletic competition. The next stage is called concrete operational. This is seven to 11, seven to 12. Well, let me go back to to two to seven. Go back. There's an interesting thing that happens at two to seven. You can't take on other perspectives yet and you can't really put two and two together. Uh So say the doorbell rings and the dog barks. For now on, you always pair those together. So every time the dog barks, you think the doorbell is going to ring and vice versa. Okay. Even though you know that it's the doorbell that causes the dog dog the bark, not the other way around, but they, they, they connect those two. So that's what happens to a two, three, four, five, six, seven year old. There you go. And, and that's why they can't understand why you're punishing them for doing something because they can't put two and two together. 
It's just, it's just crazy how it all ties together. And I think, so the, the next stage is concrete operational stage. So this is before that last stage that Tori touched on earlier that happens during sort of adolescence and then into childhood. This is that stage in between where you're still concrete in your thinking. So it is the beginning of logical thought, logic, you know, and, and reason. It's this point in life where a child is really starting to be able to, for the first time, work things out internally in their head rather than having to rely solely on interaction with the physical world around them to figure things out, right? They learn about these, this really important principle of conservation, that something stays the same in quantity, right, in value even, even though its, its appearance may change. So these are all really, really important things for the development of a child. And I think this is probably the ideal stage for the introduction of like team sports. I think before this, some of those, many of those values wouldn't really take hold. I think it would just be more about, hey, just throw the ball around, let's have fun. Yeah, you, can, not, take, yeah. you can take on other people's perspectives. Exactly. So you're able to, at this point, at the, by the time you're seven or eight, you're able to realize that, okay, if, if I let someone else play shortstop, it doesn't benefit me because I want to play shortstop, but it's going to benefit the team. You can take on that different perspective, the other players, the coach's perspective. Exactly, exactly. But you're still not fully able to, to think about your own thoughts quite yet, right? And self-assess, you know, that's that you're not quite there yet. That kind of more happens after 12. Yeah, that's when you can get into the hypotheticals. Right. Ooh, all right. That's if you guys aren't asleep yet, we'll put you to sleep <laughs> with this next one. There you go. So let's t- we'll go quicker for Eric Erickson, but he did the psychosocial development. We touched on this a little bit with the um, retirement or end of career. So I don't even know if we have to really talk about it all that much. I think that we kind of just want to zoom in on those same stages. Yep. Those same ages, three to six and six to 12. or They, they parallel each other, I think right? six to 12 and 12 to 18 are the main stages yes. when you start playing sports. So, How does it parallel with cognitive? Yeah, so it parallels perfectly. During that concrete operational, that six or seven to 12, you're in. You're going to be in the industry versus inferiority stage, what we talked about on the retirement into career episode. This is the one where you're developing competence. You're, you're looking around at your peers mm-hmm. and you're saying... You're determining what you're good at and what you're not good at, and you're developing mastery based off your peers. So you're playing sports with your peers. Oh, I'm pretty good. Oh, I'm not so good. You figure that out. Yeah. But there's a wrinkle in the matrix, right, Ooh. with with Erickson, because when when you talk about the social development by comparison to the cognitive development, uh, with social development, there there is a certain level of mastery that you should have in, uh, in whatever stage you're in, in order to progress the way you need to, to the next stage. Yeah. And if you don't progress, then it's going to set you up for failure or dysfunction in the future. And let's talk about when you get to 12 years old, you get into that identity role confusion that we talked about, where you're trying to figure out who you are as a person. So you've already developed competence and mastery in something compared to your peers. And then you figure out who you are. Who am I? Uh, what's a lot of times, what's my political identity? Although gender and sexual identity are developed or at least determined, we think, a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do we got? We got... Um, Probably like four or five years old. They say gender identity as early as three years old and then 
sexual identity or sexual interest as early as five years old. Wow. Um, but you, you said they say. Oh yeah, that's 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 those are the guys. You mean like these, the sports these, game? Do you say? Oh, <laughs> we're talking about Jean Piaget, Eric Erickson, uh, Freud. We're all ta- we're talking about the OGs, right? Or uh, I mean, that's the thinking right now, and all this is kind of fluid, and we're still f- trying to figure things out. But there's a lot of studies that show that all right, gender identity things are moving fast. Yeah, gender identity can be determined at three years old, yeah. and sexual identity can be determined at five years old. Definitely. Um, we can kind of look back in our own minds and think, all right, when did I find out who I was attracted to? When did I find out who I was, what sex I was, what gender I am? Um, but as we know, as we get more and more progressive, things become a little bit more fluid. So these stages are important and this kind of just lays the foundation for everything. So let's go back to kind of a little bit more coaching and strategies for, for setting your kid up for success in sports. We already talked about how positive reinforcement is number one, being consistent. You have to have that strong holding environment, which we mentioned. If you can allow your child, he can go out and play and come home and he can feel secure, attached, and loved, then he feels stability. He has that consistency, and that's going to lead him to, or her, taking on more challenges, going out there and playing. And it's okay if they get knocked down at football practice the first day because they know when they go home, mommy or daddy is going to give them a big hug. Yeah. You know, and then that's going to provide them more confidence to go out there back on the football field and maybe they're going to lay the boom on someone and that's how you develop resilience. Maybe. So be there for them. And then also model this behavior. So not only positively reinforce them, but model the behaviors you want in your child, right? So go to work every day, <laughs> make, <laughs> make an honest living. Yeah. Uh, don't yell at your spouse, you know, yeah. come on now. Just simple things like I, we're not going to preach you guys on how to, how to model good behavior. Yeah. We're all adults here. I mean, we probably, have, I don't know if we have any young listeners, but the reason why we're bringing up these developmental stages is you kind of have to be aware of what stage your child's in because you have to adjust and be flexible with them. And as they get older, as they become adolescents, as they get into that higher formal operational thinking, they're going to want some autonomy and they're going to want to negotiate with you. And they're going to ask a lot of questions. Do it. I mean, two-year-olds ask a shit ton of questions as well. Just negotiate. But, you know. You're not going to negotiate with a three-year-old. No, no, not a (laughs) three-year-old. Well, I mean, there's even some negotiation going on there too. Three-year-olds are smarter than Different types of negotiation though versus a 13-year-old, a 15-year-old. What's the ultimate goal here? Yeah. Individuation autonomy you want your child to become a full functioning independent adult if possible so you got to allow them to act like an adult Mm -hmm. give them opportunities to be an adult make mistakes um that's the only way to grow mm -hmm. and that's how you foster resilience which is huge yeah man in fact just to kind of interestingly tie this whole thing together is the other phase to that whole uh, schema theory that piaget brought to us is this notion of assimilation and accommodation, Mm -hmm. right? And equilibration. So those are the main principles behind how our minds evolve, how we learn. We start with one sort of state of knowledge, and then when we confront something that is different than what we already understand and, and, and know, we have to accommodate, right? We have to, we have to change, we have to become dynamic. Uh, and we have to to grow and adapt. 
And body, the mind, it really doesn't like frustration, doesn't like that tension of frustration, like mm-hmm. not understanding, not knowing, getting something wrong. Mm-hmm. That feeling, we all know that feeling when you, when you are corrected, it's kind of embarrassment or you do something wrong. It's just, you're, you know, that disappointment. We don't like that. And so we are adapted to accommodate, you know, to assimilate new information. And because we're always seeking that balance, right? We're always seeking that equilibrium, right? And equilibrium comes when we can feel comfortable with, with adapting, you know, to the world around us. Um, parents can definitely facilitate that, that process by encouraging us to experience the world around us. Right. And encouraging us to, as you said, make mistakes. Yeah. Be behind them to help them out if they need it, but allow them to explore. Don't be that helicopter lawnmower parent that we talked about. And coaching's the same way. Just like you have to, you know, your daughter, you have to know your son. The coaches have to know, ideally, to be an effective coach, you have to know each individual player's style. For sure. fit, and you have to f- adapt to that and fit that in order to get the most out of them. So let, this leads us into some of these individuals that have maybe have mental illness or mental health struggles. Mm-hmm. For instance, someone with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, a child who comes from a very traumatic background, has been witness to a lot of violence and abuse, maybe yelling and screaming at that child isn't going to be helpful because it, it might trigger them and put them in a fight, flight, or freeze mode. Mm-hmm. And you can't take I don't know in, if that's a maybe. You, yeah, exactly. You can't take in information when you're, you're in fight or flight. You're, you're running on emotions. That's There's right. no rational just, thinking just there. reacting. So you have to be aware of that. And then what about someone who's like a child that's depressed? What's that going to look like in a kid compared to an adult? Because it looks different. Yeah, they're, they're definitely more irritable. Yeah. Yeah. So temper tantrums, yep. um, screaming, yelling, uh, acting out at school, that could be depression. Mm-hmm. That you're not going to see someone doping around, saying they're sad and hopeless, or nah. talking about their feelings. They don't have that narrative. Yeah. I mean, they don't have that language, the mm-hmm. language around yeah. how they feel quite yet, right? And then anxiety looks different too, because we think. I think of an anxious adult. I think of someone that is just kind of on edge, right? They may kind of have weird body movements, like tremulousness, or you know, stuff like that. They they're you know worrying a lot, and they like they don't mind telling you about yeah. what they're worried about. Well, a lot of adults, most adults that have anxiety will first present to their family doctor, or their primary care doctor mm-hmm. with physical complaints, with mm-hmm. somatic symptoms. Yeah. And they get the medical workup. There's nothing wrong. Turns out they have anxiety that's manifesting right. as a physical symptom. Right. Well, kids oftentimes when they're anxious, they're very kind of guarded and restricted. They, they might avoid. They avoid. They avoid. So the, the quiet kid, you know, you always hear people talking about, oh, she's real quiet or he's real quiet. They're in the corner and oh, they're, they're fine because they're not disruptive. Well, actually, they're, well, they're, you know, they're not well. <laughs> you well, know what I, mean? Like, I mean, not all quiet kids I mean, are not unwell, all, but not yeah. all quiet kids, well. Yeah, you're right. I mean, not all quiet kids, but no, the ones that that are quiet because they're just kind of ruminating. You want to help those kids. Yeah, and it's tough because you could have a kid that's acting out horrible on the football field or basketball field, won't pay attention to anyone, is hitting, beating up on kids, and it could be because of depression. It could be because of anxiety. It could be ADHD. It could be oppositional defiant. Someone who's anxious may act out to avoid something. Maybe they go get to school, and the first thing they do when they get to school is they punch a classmate so they can get sent home because they're anxious about going into their math class because mm-hmm. they, they don't know how to do math. And what about the wanderers? 
right? The ones uh, that just like walk out of class. Oh, and just and do their own thing. Because they, they can't sit still. Yeah. You know? So that may be ADHD. So like, so this, you got to be aware on the football field, depending on the ages, if someone's acting out, it, there could be a mental health issue underlying that. There could, maybe there's not a necessarily a mental health issue. Maybe there's something going on at home that needs to be kind of looked at. Um, it's a mental health issue. It may not be mental illness. Okay. Yeah. You know, but and it's all mental health good issues point, good you know, point. at the end of the day. So some of the most common, like we see a lot of depression, anxiety, but ADHD and what what's something we call ODD or oppositional defiant disorder is huge in these kind of young kids. Mm-hmm. And like you said, everyone kind of knows what attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is. Yeah. I mean, kids tend to be much more the... Uh, restless type you know more the hyperactive hyperactive. and then it turns into more inattentive as as a child gets older yeah Uh, girls tend to be more inattentive type and boys tend to be more combined or hyperactive type yeah but everyone knows the hyperactive kid that's running around fidgeting in class back and forth so this could be purely adhd but you also got to be on the lookout for odd or oppositional defiant disorder and this is this is the kid that's acting out has a lot of behavioral issues um, doesn't necessarily respect authority a lot of times. This is the kid that's going to curse out the teacher. Uh, yeah. Curse out your, the, put up a fight for every limit set yeah. at home. And honestly, when I see kids like that, the first thing I think about what's going on at home. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing I think about. Well, the, yeah, that's the number one treatment for a child like that. And the number one treatment for a real, really young kid with ADHD is behavioral treatment and working with the family and working with the teachers and working with the coaching staff if, if they're playing a sport. And you want to kind of nip those behaviors in the butt because if you have a kid with oppositional defiant disorder, it can lead to conduct disorder, exactly. which can lead to antisocial personality disorder, which is another kind of a fancy term for psychopathy mm-hmm. or psychopathy is a fancy yeah. term for antisocial our, our, our personality prisons disorder. prisons are, are filled with guys like that. Yeah, and sometimes our presidents and CEOs of big companies can have a psychopathy. Yeah, it can go a lot of different ways. You never know where life yeah. may take us. So the bottom line is, a coach, a teacher, a parent, if you see a child acting out, investigate. Don't just kick the t- kid off the team. Don't say he's unfit for sports. Oh, and, he's a troublemaker. don't brush it under the rug. Don't brush it. On, yeah, just because he's a great athlete, don't, yeah, don't like, well. <laughs> question things. Don't yeah. be like, how are your parents doing, Timmy? Like, you, you got to investigate this stuff because now's the time. When the child's six, seven, eight, nine, yeah. when they show up to the baseball field or the, or the ice rink, yeah. that's the time to make a permanent change in these kids' lives and alter their trajectory. Because if you brush under the rug, we have plenty of examples of people yeah. even that make it to the major leagues and yeah. doesn't yeah. turn out well. You know, and, and that, that may kind of be like really the main idea, the main thing we hope to get across in this episode is uh, the importance of early intervention, right? Recognizing things early. Listen, mental, what, what makes mental illness really tough is that most of the time you're talking to a teenager or very young adult and you're telling them, hey, listen, you, you have a chronic medical illness, right? Something that you're going to, to have to deal with for the rest of your life. That sucks, right? It sucks. Just like it sucks to be diagnosed with diabetes. That's what I'm saying. And, and, and people who are diagnosed with diabetes more often than not, much more often than not are going to be in the 50s, 60s. Same thing with, hi- with hypertension. Right, another very common chronic medical illness. But you know, it's like we talk about these stages of life. I mean, by the time you've achieved that phase of life, it's almost like 
you're just you're you're much more tolerant of the fact that you could become ill, right? And you have to deal with that. And you're not going to internalize it the same way. You're almost going to look at it like, well, okay, this is what I got to do. I have friends that are dealing with stuff, and I saw my parents deal with stuff at this phase, you know? So, so you roll with it. It's kind of like part of the culture of someone in their 50s to have a doctor or a primary doctor, somebody that they check in on. So, but when you're in your, your teens and 20s, hell no, right? That's, that's not at all. That, in fact, is stigmatizing. It makes you mm-hmm. very different makes you stand out in a negative way. And, you know, we, we have to deal with these people all the time. And, and, and it, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. And you see the struggle. It's always, you know, a struggle. But here's the thing. When you understand that these things all have roots in development, early life trauma, early life experiences that don't allow for proper transformation, proper transition through these developmental stages. Can I touch on trauma real quick? Please I have a great study real quick. Yes, sir. So in JAMA Pediatrics of May of 2019, JAMA is one of the big um, journals for medicine. Mm -hmm. So this is in JAMA Pediatrics. Huge journal. This is almost 10,000 people. Um, And they said, among children affected by adverse childhood experiences, which could be like what you said, could be trauma, could be parents divorcing, could be witnessing violence. Children affected by adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, team sports and adolescence was associated with less depression and anxiety in young adulthood. Wow. And they went on. So among those with four or more ACEs, four or more adverse childhood experiences, the adjusted proportion reporting current mental illness fell from 25%, one in four, of those who did not regularly participate in childhood sports to just to 19% in those who did participate in sports. So it's a modest improvement, but it's an improvement nonetheless. And that's 10,000 people that participated in this study that came out in May in 2019 in JAMA Pediatrics. So we're seeing a connection between sports and mental health. And there's, act, there's something about sports that is providing resilience. We're going to always go back to resilience because that's what, these, that's what we're trying to foster in these kids. And that's, that's what right. us as psychiatrists, that's our number one goal. And that should be the goal of every parent and every coach. That's right. Resilience and wellness. Yep. Right? Resilience is the road to wellness. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And we want to lay down that pathway. Um, and it's all about praise. You got to praise. But you, yep. here's the thing. You got to praise the hard work don't praise the result there you go praise that's how you develop resilience right don't say oh you're a you're a stud football player it's timmy process. say you worked freaking hard timmy and look what you did that's you played right. great because you worked hard yeah the process the process yeah man so uh, i think we'd be uh missing a uh, an important piece here if we didn't touch on suicide that's huge nowadays, unfortunately, with, with children and adolescents. And whenever we talk about children, we're talking about under 12 years old. And adolescents usually, it actually ranges from 12 to 26 if you're talking to a pediatrician. Yeah. 12 to 18, 12 to 20. Mm-hmm. Brain's still developing till 26. So that's why a lot of the pediatric doctors and child and adolescent psychiatry doctors are, have come to realize that people in their, young, their low to mid-20s are still adolescents. So the rates of suicide have doubled from the 60s to the 90s. And they've increased since then, continue to increase. And then if you take actually take a look at recent data from 2011, just Mm -hmm. so happens that's when the smartphone became popular in households. Hmm. The rates have gone up even further. 
Okay. And the rates are not only going up in children, adolescents, they're also going up in young adults and middle-aged adults. The only group that's not increasing in suicide is elderly. That's so interesting. Suicide is the seventh leading cause of death in the U.S., but it's, it's the uh, third leading cause of death in adolescents. And the leading cause of heartbreak among parents. So let's talk about risk factors. Previous attempts, you know, anytime you have a young person that has attempted suicide, you got to take everything they do seriously. Yeah, that's that the point. number one risk factor by far. Is, uh, history repeats itself. Oh, history is the best teacher, for yeah. sure. Absolutely. Yep. So someone who has a previous suicide attempt, what you're saying, up to 66% of those people will attempt again. And when they attempt again, they're using more lethal means the following time. Mm. Up the ante. Yeah. Up the ante. And what wow. in most successful suicide attempts, what's used in two-thirds of the attempts? I mean, I, I feel like... Are you talking about lethal? Yeah. Or like... Probably guns. Yeah, firearms. Yeah. Wow. Well, speaking of firearms, man, like, it's kind of crazy. You think about this uprising that we've seen in, in recent years related to guns and mass violence. Yeah. Right? These school shootings. I mean, we're talking about what parents nowadays are really concerned about in terms of protecting their children. I mean, sports and competition and athletics is one thing, but yeah, it's... it's yeah, that's a tough to, topic. Just man. sending your child to, to school. And um, just a place worrying, of learning, yeah. And, and <laughs> worrying if they're going to come home. Uh, it's crazy, man. And, you know, one of the things that, that bothers me the most about what's happening here is there's always this public outcry to these 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 events and you know you have political leaders you know take these opportunities to use their platform to influence public perception mm-hmm. right because they're like okay this thing happened um now we've got we've got everyone's attention yeah there's two camps right and so, you know, some of these political leaders, in an effort to, to use... I wouldn't say some, I would say all. The, ...their platforms to sort of garner this attention, they, unfortunately, will deliver information that oftentimes is more for a political agenda than Oftentimes, for, all the time. <laughs> than, for, than, for really, than for really delivering truth, Right. And so for that reason, we, we feel it's so important as physicians, as psychiatrists, as people who have studied these things to report to the public what's real and what's truth about mental illness and mass shootings. Yeah. So we have the people on the right blaming mental health and we have the people on the left blaming gun violence. Right. Or blaming guns. And yeah, I mean, we're not sitting here trying to trying to solve this dilemma, right? We're not politicians, you know. Uh, we're we're far outside of the scope of, of of politics. Yeah, I think we're saying the obvious. The obvious is it's it's much more than both of those things. So much more, so much deeper, man. And let me let me tell you, like first and foremost, having mental illness does not make you a killer. No. Okay, uh, it does not make you a person that would plan out a mass shooting, mm-hmm. you know, that would target helpless victims. There's no correlation yeah. there. Well, let me tell you the correlations quickly to violence. 
what are the risk factors for that? The mm -hmm. number one risk factor, just like past history of suicide, is the number one risk factor for suicide, past history of violence. Number one risk factor for future violence, being young, 15 to 24, majority of violence happens at that age. Being male, 10 time increase of violence being male. Those are the main ones. Being a victim of abuse, witnessing violence, having unstable parenting. A history of head trauma actually can lead to increased violence because you're more impulsive. Right. So these are all things that can you know contribute to the development of a violent individual. Yeah. Right. But this is kind of different than the mass shootings. That's, that's right. It's, to, it's a little bit of a different thing. Right. Somewhat. Yeah, it, it is somewhat. But the thing is, most people with mental illness are actually more likely to be victims. Yeah. Of of you know violent crime. The patient with schizophrenia that you see on the streets yelling, screaming, midair with feces all over his body, like you said, he's more likely to be a victim of violence than be violent. Even though on outwardly appearance, you're yelling and screaming, yeah. that person's in their own world. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you, there's some scarier types of mental illness scenarios where, you know, you have this, this thing called mania, right, which is a feature of bipolar disorder. And when people have mania, when they're in these phases, you know, they're just these short kind of discrete phases of the illness, they tend to be a bit grandiose. Uh, maybe they tend to take more risks than they should more impulsive, you know, they may be a bit irrational and disorganized. Mm -hmm. Definitely right? leads to an increase of suicide. For sure. But it doesn't make them a killer, okay? It doesn't make them people that want to intentionally, and there's a key, harm others. I think it connects back to empathy. These disorders don't necessarily take away your empathy or cause you to be callous or unemotional. I think where you're going with this is trying to make a distinction between mental illness Versus personality disorders, yeah. like personality pathology for sure. Antisocial personality yeah. disorder, which is it's a personality disorder that increases the risk for violence. That's right. So think like Manson, Dahmer, right? Mm -hmm. These are the types of people, manipulative, that would take an assault rifle, walk into a school, and just start unleashing on innocent, helpless children. Okay not a person with bipolar disorder, not a person with schizophrenia, not a person with depression, no. Now, here's where things get tricky. You can have antisocial personality and be depressed. You can have antisocial personality and have bipolar disorder, right? You can have antisocial personality and have, have a lot of things. It puts you at risk for different mental illnesses. For sure. But... Having mental illness alone does not make you a killer, is not going to turn you into a mass shooter, and we need to set the record straight on that. I think the record's straight. Um, we'd be remiss not to talk about substance abuse. Obviously, alcohol, any substance, that's going to increase your risk for both violence and suicide. Um, lack of social support, but another one that's both on violence and suicide is access to weapons. So if there is one concrete thing you can do to possibly decrease violence and decrease mass shootings would be to try to limit access to weapons and that would also decrease suicide as well um, because actually women attempt suicide more often than men twice as often actually okay but they don't succeed as much as men right. and that's because men use guns to commit suicide right. and more women use uh, poisons or overdose and the men are more successful because they, they're using firearms and 
there's actually biology uh, or physiology that comes into play here. Yeah, we could, there's neurotransmitters. We couldn't, we couldn't leave y'all without going That physiology. are associated with aggression and violence. So right. if you have low serotonin, and they measured this in the spinal fluid, you're going to be more aggressive. That's associated with aggression. It's also associated with depression. If Do you, you think that's why SSRIs help? Absolutely. Hmm. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. Low GABA, another neurotransmitter. That's important for calming you down. If that's low, you're at increased risk for aggression. If you have high dopamine, high testosterone, and high acetylcholine, increase aggression. So the futures here, we're coming up, we're, we're, we're looking more and more into the physiology, the biology, yeah. and what can relate to aggression, what can relate to violence, what can relate to suicide, and how can we do things to help this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're developing better treatments, uh, more effective interventions. There's genetic links to suicide. Even in adopted kids, no. adopted much we can to do different families. That. Yeah, I, you know, that, but that goes back to like to therapy, man. And you know, one under the radar type of therapy that I think could be really, really helpful, especially when you have a child of adoption that enters a family, or a child you know with special needs, or a child with mental illness. Uh, family therapy, right? Family therapy. There are specialists out there that specialize in the type of therapy that includes all members of the family. Yeah, when you're treating a child or an adolescent for a mental illness or a mental health struggle, or you want to optimize their wellness, you're not just getting them involved, you're getting their whole family involved, ideally. And like I said, their teachers and coaches, if possible, because you have so much more of an opportunity to, they're so much more moldable. Everyone knows a child is more moldable, so you have to, you have to really get at and help and educate the individuals around them to make adjustments as well because you're not going to just give them Prozac and send them on their merry way like you may a 35-year-old. Right. We went pretty deep and dark there at the end, but moral of the story from my point of view and then I want you to give your point of view is positive reinforcement, praising good behaviors is beneficial for anyone under 12 years old. You can start implementing punishment when someone gets older and more mature, when they have that ability to think abstractly and reason. But make sure everything is consistent. Make sure you create a strong holding environment or strong safety at home so that your child or your player feels Think think twice about spanking. Yeah, think (laughs) twice about spanking only in moderation. This is how you gain that player's respect. Gain your child's respect. Foster resilience for them to ultimately become full-functioning independent adults with a low chance of having any mental health struggles. There you go and a high chance of becoming great. That wraps up Children in Sports. I am Dr. Armin Hose. And I am Dr. Jean Piaget. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, man. All right, Jean Piaget, let's go. Hey, man, let's, uh, let's continue the conversation. Let's end the stigma.